Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked supporters. Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me, as ever, we have Spikes Steps editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking about Afghanistan, incels, the crackdown on private speech, and Lily Cole's Taliban chic. So the scenes in Kabul have really shocked the world and even Western governments have been taken by surprise by the speed at which the Afghan forces and Afghan government fell and again, the speed with which the Taliban have taken over. I mean, Tom, what have you made of this kind of past week or so of events? Well, I think it's been really striking, especially the response from Western powers who started this mess to begin with. I mean, it started off with the utter betrayal, really, of the people in Afghanistan who took the West at their word mm. and took part in this project of trying to build this state. Um, not just the people who worked as interpreters or were in the security forces or helped uh, the Western forces, etc., but also people who set up schools, who started to try and build this um, sort of Western-style civil society. They've been completely abandoned. I mean, it's so striking given the fact that a timetable was set for all of this, that both the US, the UK and various other places have been incapable to get people out. I mean, the kind of bungling of this is something that's worth talking about on its own terms, not seeing it coming this quickly, not mm. securing um, the safe passage of these people. But then there's also the, the dishonesty of it. I mean, I think we saw this most starkly in Joe Biden's speech. First of all, him saying that this was never about nation building when in 2003 – as he was saying, that the alternative to nation building in Afghanistan and elsewhere is chaos. Also, kind of shifting the blame onto people themselves for his own failings. So he yeah. made this comment that the reason they didn't get more people out, more Afghans out, was because a lot of them wanted to stay during recent months, which any of the refugee and uh, groups who've been working with these people have said that's just complete bullshit. And then, I think we really saw this with the ridiculous debate in Parliament this week, is the delusion that this was the good war. Yeah. And it's just worth taking a step back because it seems like the people who are really pro this intervention are incapable of thinking of more than one step forward or one step back. But, you know, the West has been there for 20 years. It's cost something like, according to some estimates, like 50,000 civilian lives. The US has spent more on trying to build this state than they spent rebuilding Europe after the Second World War. And it collapsed in a matter of days. It's mm -hmm. achieved precisely nothing. And the way that we left has obviously made that so much worse. But the fact that all certainly RMPs can do is grandstand about it and either say or at least heavily imply that we should have stuck about longer. It, it's so obscene, really. 
um, this is a mess of the West making fundamentally. And it's not just about the means through which we, we left it. Ella. Well, it's worth pointing out that some of the, you know, people are getting an easy ride, in particular Joe Biden. I mean, you can imagine Trump saying some of the stuff that he said mm. and there being an international incident about it when he was asked about what he thought about people falling out of airplanes and the kind of scrums, horrendous scenes that we've been seeing um, in Kabul airport. He said, oh, that was a few days ago. You know, just like completely flippant. And it was flippant. a few days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but just callous to the extreme. Yeah. And um, out of it. And then, as you say, Tom, um, you move across the ponds to the House of Commons and there's a different kind of callousness because uh, you would expect a different narrative that we would have to understanding mm. what happened in Afghanistan from Tom Tugendhat and Johnny Mercer and Tobias Elwood and people who've been involved in the British Army because obviously they have a different perspective on on what the British state's role and what the army's role was in that country. But they, in particular, Tugendhat Mercer, made their interventions about Afghanistan, not about the plight of people, citizens who live there, not about, uh, you know, even going on about women whose lives are drastically changing now under Taliban rule, but about themselves, talking about how upset they were that their role in, um, in particular, Tugendhat talked about his own decoration as an officer and how that was besmirched by the government leaving in such a mishandled way. You had other politicians coming forward and saying, you know, how did this happen? How did this happen? You mean, what do you mean, how did it happen? Did someone secretly flip a switch and decide the night, you know, night before, do you know what, today's going to be the day that we leave? No, it didn't happen that way. This has been, you know, since 2012, there's been discussions about and moves to um, remove British troops from Afghanistan. So they're, they're, someone knows more than they're saying and the blame is being passed around uh, in a really unconscionable kind of way that most importantly leaves Afghans completely in the lurch and also more importantly puts the blame on them. I mean, another callous thing that Joe Biden sort of said was, why aren't they doing it? This is up to them. And he's not saying in terms of how we would put it that any kind of fight against the Taliban or any of the Middle East's problems was formally based around a lack of repatriation for sovereignty and an anti-democratic stance of Western intervention. And yes, the people in the Middle East should be the ones who decide what to happen in their nations. No, it wasn't that kind of abstract defense of democracy. It was a, it was a kind of, kind of statement from Biden that was saying, you're on your own now. Uh, why don't you do something about it? Never mind the fact that we've taken away all your resources and the 20 years that we spent there was like pissing up the wall. It wasn't building infrastructure. It wasn't nation building. Get on with it yourselves. The thing I'm worried about now is being able to tell, talk truthfully about what really is happening. Because one of the more alarming things that Tugendhat said um, was those who did not fight for the colours that we fly should have no say in this. Basically mm. saying if you weren't on the ground, you don't have any right to slam the British Army, you don't have any right to stand to slam troops who were there. And we can't allow that to happen. What we have to say is whatever narrative comes out of this emo over-emotionalized and unrealistic narrative that comes out of this from British politicians, we have to say, is that really mm. what happened in Afghanistan? I mean, yeah. it's, it is also worth saying it's not about the troops themselves, it's the people who sent yeah. them there. I mean, you know, a working class kid from the northeast who gets his legs blown off because Tom Tugendhat, some DC think tanker, have this great idea to civilise the Pashtuns. I mean, it's absolutely obscene even mm. on that level. And... I thought it was interesting, even in that debate. I mean, someone like Clive Lewis wasn't called, but he's also a veteran who has a very different opinion on yeah. all of this. I mean, he has crazy opinions about all sorts of other things, not necessarily want to vindicate him as a person. But again, that really conscious attempt to kind of limit discussion mm. about this, to say if you weren't there, shut the fuck up, is so ridiculous. And I think anyone can recognise that. And, and I think, you know, also limit in, in the way that you have to be pro-intervention 
because we've seen from the response of journalists that basically anyone who is in favour of the intervention, anyone who surreptitiously, whether they say it out loud or not, are the ones, you know, being praised to the rafters. Um, you know, it's al- it's almost like you're not serious if you if you are against this war, which I find really, really baffling. This, you know, the chaos unfolding now is directly attributable to our original intervention. And yet, at the same time, it seems to be spurring demands for staying longer for, you know, who knows what the, it's probably not going to put off um, the next planned intervention, whenever that might be, whenever the next kind of humanitarian crisis unfolds. And and as you were saying, Ella, you know, it's not because suddenly Joe Biden and Boris Johnson have woken up to the importance of self-determination in, yeah. in the Middle East. It's really, it is about an internal disarray. It's an internal crumbling. And in many ways, these interventions have always been about us. Mm-hmm. They're always us looking for a role on the world stage. And unfortunately, you know, the Afghans in this case pay the price there. Mm. No, I, I think you saw that so much in all of those discussions in Parliament, just it becoming this sort of orgy of virtue signalling um, to different degrees. Because as you say, so much of that Western interventionist project was about giving a mission to rootless and, uh, you know, completely lacking in vision Western politicians. Mm. And the project they came up with, nation building, turned out to not only be a disaster, but just utterly ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, you look at the speed with which the Afghan state crumbled. It's stunning, you know, mm. within a matter of days. I mean, these these uh, army and security forces, it's hard to get the numbers right because there's a lot of people who are basically signed up, actually aren't in the army because someone's collecting that money. There's a lot of corruption yeah. in this particular state. But, you know, the Taliban, it was estimated to be, you know, a third of the size of these forces. Now, obviously, people say, you know, the US air support was pulled out and all the rest of it, they were demoralised. But also, you know, you're dealing with a society in which you have a lot of tribal divides, tribal loyalties. There's not that kind of loyalty to the state, certainly Mm. not the one that was basically just cooked up in Kabul. And so that's one of the things that makes the virtue signalling even more irritating was that they invested so much in a project that was obviously not going to work, was obviously going to come along with disastrous consequences. And even as it crumbles before their eyes, not only do they feel moved to defend it, but they just see it as another opportunity to grandstand slightly hopelessly. I mean, it reached its nadir, I think, with, you know, Stella Creasy making a point of saying, and we should make clear that the Taliban is not Islam, as if that's got anything to do with what we're really talking about right now. But again, that's just a slightly more ridiculous example of how this is just an opportunity, a soapbox, yeah, for them to feel good about themselves, even through them, you know, in the context of a horrendous, bloody situation. Well, the, the irony is in relation to kind of Stella Creasy's point is that the reason the Taliban do have some coherence is because, you know, Islam is something that coheres the, na- the nation together in the absence of mm. an actual belief in, in in the Afghan state. Yeah, and the, I mean, the the West can't really admit why it's lost because it had, this is a defeat and Brendan O'Neill um, put it in one of his articles this week, you know, that the most sophisticated um, intelligence network um, army in America and, and in the UK have been defeated by a ragtag bunch of, you know, Islamist insurgents. It's, it's absurd, as you say, that that has happened. But the reason why they can't admit that this is a defeat, that it is a retreat, and I think actually Brendan called it, you know, this was worse than the defeat in Saigon, mm. 
is because it what it reveals is not just a defeat in Afghanistan and the failure of that kind of uh, nation building mission, if that's what they want to call it, but a defeat at the heart of uh, the West's belief in itself. Because in 2001, in response to 9-11, you go in there with a, you know, a mission, quite clear cut mission about defeating Al-Qaeda. And very quickly, that comes to a head and and is in many ways resolved. The Taliban is pushed back into the mountains in Pakistan. And Tulsi Gabbard and other people have said on Twitter, at that point is when they should have called it a day and got out of Afghanistan. The reason why it was prolonged for those 20 years, which most of the time was, uh, in, in particular with the UK, the motivated by how can we stop British troops from dying, a kind of protection, defensive effort, rather than a, a moral mission to kind of civilise a part of the world. I think many people like Tom Tugendhat and Johnny Mercer think of it as um, it was it was a kind of a waste and throughout that waste not only did people die but also the Taliban built itself back up and we're right back at mm. for, for Afghan citizens we're right back at square one if not worse yeah. and the the most frustrating thing has been and I think the most telling thing has been the reliance and discussion about women because there have been so many politicians who've said even in sort of this kind of blunt ways the best thing we did there was we we got girls into schools and you know we really did something for women and and uh, actually I think it was Johnny Mercer said you know there will be some 18 year olds in Afghanistan who can remember that little bit of freedom we gave them and what that really is doing is revealing how shallow the West's belief in itself is you can't impose democracy um, externally and if your only view of what is a kind of a progressive nation or with secular views or democratic views or whatever is sending a few girls to school it shows how unconvinced you are of your own belief in western values so-called western values of freedom and democracy mm. and even on the on the point that people are falling back on now which is that it's kept us safe from terrorism and mm. the rest of it which obviously was the kind of original justification but there's also been a lot of kind of after the fact justifications that have been brought in in relation to afghanistan since but even on that score it's utterly ridiculous. And you cannot use Afghanistan as a vindication of Western interventionism's ability to, to keep us safe. I mean, first of all, I mean, obviously Al-Qaeda was degraded, but it's not gone, which yeah. is worth saying. Um, that's not an argument for staying in, but it is the reality. It's worth remembering that when they finally found Osama bin Laden, he was in Pakistan. There's mm. all kinds of places. Mm. These borderless jihadist movements can find a place to hide themselves and to operate. But also what, what they're really talking about is the, is the general sort of policy and approach as well. And the idea that the war on terror has been a, has been a sparkling success in terms <laughs> yeah. of bringing down these groups around the world as well as keeping the homeland safe is ridiculous. I mean, all of our interventions have created space for these people to operate. You think of ISIS emerging out of the rubble of the intervention in Iraq. You think about what the destabilization of Libya has done to that, the mm. return of slave markets to that part of the world and all the rest of it. You know, not to mention the fact that a lot of the threats that we've faced have been homegrown as well, which is something that, um, again, they never seem to get through their heads. There was a report out a couple of years ago from a um, US think tank and they, in their estimation that from 2001 to 2018, the number of Sunni Islamic militant groups has increased fourfold over that time. So the idea that Afghanistan is an example of how it's been a sparkling counter-terror success mm. is completely ridiculous. And we shouldn't let them fall back on that as a justification for it. You know what it can be like. You've just made a great looking piece of creative work. It could be a brochure, a magazine, a flyer, an annual report, a teaching guide or a product catalogue. You name it. But once you've made it, now you have to post it on your website and then you have to share it on Twitter and Instagram and then you have to share it to all your contacts. But every time you want to post it somewhere, you have to reformat it, resize it, re-download it and re-upload it. What you really need in this situation 
is Issue. Issue is the easiest and best way to make your creative ideas come to life and to share them everywhere you want them to be seen. Issue is the all-in-one platform you can use to create and distribute beautiful digital content. With Issue, there's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative work in an easy-to-view way on every single device. You can make something once and distribute it everywhere without any of the painful reformatting. Your content will already be optimized for engagement and will be ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use, like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. It's perfect for creators, marketers, designers, and anyone who wants to make content that stands out. You can start using Issue for free, but I'd really recommend their premium features that give a more customized experience. So get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use the promo code SPIKED. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use the promo code SPIKED at the checkout and you'll get your free account or 50% off a premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with the promo code SPIKED. Sticking with Terra, but back to the domestic front, um, we should talk about the tragedy in in Plymouth. Jake Davison shot and killed five people, including his own mother and a three-year-old girl. Most of the kind of media commentary has focused on the fact that he might be an incel based on his kind of internet history. Tom, I mean, you've written a great piece about this. Do you want to explain a bit? What's mm. the significance of this incel phenomenon? Yes, yeah, so incels, to those who don't know, it's means involuntary celibate. It's a kind of online community of um, young men who are, you know, deeply unhappy because of the fact that they're unable to have sex, unable to have relationships with women. It's deeply misogynistic in a lot of places. Um, it has its own entire kind of online subculture. And there have been a number of incel linked um, murders, mass shootings. There was, of course, the um, Elliot Roger killings in 2014 in California. 2018, I think, was Alec Manassian ramming people with a van in Toronto and then trying to get himself shot by police. And so there's been this kind of ongoing discussion about whether or not this is terrorism, Mm. whether or not this is something which should be treated as seriously as ISIS or whatever else. And I think that's a really important discussion we have because of the fact that we need to get these threats in perspective if we're going, or we need to understand them on their own terms if you're going to actually tackle them. Because it's, I think it's quite obvious to me that whether you're talking about Jake Davison or any of these other examples, that it has a lot more akin to kind of like school shooters yeah. type thing. These things are basically acts of personal revenge, but meted out on people sort of slightly indiscriminately, um, as well as some people who they probably had a particular beef with. Um, the other thing is that uh, this is tied up with also them trying to kill themselves as well. Mm. I mean, there's some people who've um, really studied the incel phenomenon find that whilst there is some kind of glorification of these killers, partly it's semi-ironic, but the most discussion of violence that takes place in these forums is about suicide. So th- this is obviously a, a very, very different phenomenon um, which needs to be understood on those terms. And then there's also the fact that the reason that people are trying to talk about it in terms of terrorism is really just to score quite cheap political points, which I think when you're looking at a tragedy as barbaric as this, Mm. makes it really, really unseemly. You know, you've got feminists who basically just want to use this as a way 
to say propagandistically that you know the British state doesn't care about women. You know, there's all, there's often this other identitarian refrain was that you know if he wasn't a white guy, they would treat this as a terror incident and mm. all the rest of it, which is absolutely ridiculous, as if that makes any bearing on this whatsoever. And and so that is not the terms on which you understand these threats. And it's quite unseemly for people to try and make identitarian points off the back of this. And it's just quite clear there's a distinction. If you're talking about terrorism, it's something which has a coherent ideology, which incels really don't. I mean, there's a whole bunch of quite strange ideas they have, which we might get into. A lot of it like is quite misogynistic. rather than ideology. Yeah, there's, there's, and there's layers of it as well. Some mm. of them are trying to, are there for kind of a creepy version of self-help, trying to get out of yeah. it. Some of them are really embrace this identity. Some of them do lionize these killers. Other than don't. But as I say, there's a sort of semi-ironic base to that. So it's not an ideology as such. And the other thing is they're not there to bring about some sort of political change. It's an act of uh, sort of nihilistic destruction and self-destruction, these sort of killings. So it's just, you know, we hope we won't see any more attacks like this. There's, and surely more must be done to make sure that things like this don't happen again. But you have to see it in its own context if you're going to understand it and, and to tackle it. But that's not what these people who are desperate to call it terrorism are actually interested in doing. Ella, what have you made of the kind of incel phenomenon? I also think that the, the you know, the term terrorism is that you could endlessly debate over who gets classified over that, who decides what gets classified as a terrorist attack. But in some way, shape or form, as Tom's been alluding to, it involves some kind of coherent political motive mm. or some kind of vision that is mm. either being reacted against or trying to implement. And, you know, even to be as crude as to analyse Davison's victims, it wasn't like he went and attacked a women's shelter or a girls' school or something that was, you know, obviously talking about women I mean, of his victims were a father and his adopted three-year-old. I mean, it, it was in that way, a kind of indiscriminate, selfish acting out that had nothing to do with really his um, supposed views on being a, uh, uh, you know, celibate and his being a virgin and being sacked from his job and all this kind of emoting that he had done on his YouTube video. I also think it was really quite something that so many people took to um, sharing and analysing his uh, YouTube videos, a means of explaining his acts, you know, moments after it had happened, um, when we really didn't know any of the details, and particularly when it comes to an uh, act of violence like that and suicide, the reasons, as we know, and, and suicide charities are blue in the face saying are very, very complicated. And mm. it's not as easy as saying someone puts out a mad YouTube video here and then commits um, such heinous murder there. The, the drive to call it terrorist, and I know that there have been some people, some um, women's campaigners who've been suggesting that if only he had been picked up by Prevent or something yeah. like that, if only mm. he had been caught by um, some of these kind of bureaucratic nets, then it would never have happened. What it denies is this kind of reassuring thing is that people like Davison are completely abnormal. Yeah. As in, it doesn't happen all the time. It isn't at, at, in any way, shape or form near the same level of threat of Islamic terrorism, for example, which we've seen repeatedly over the last few years and has the context of what's happening in the Middle East to back it up. There is no global network of men who are campaigning to attack women. There, you know, no matter what people like to talk about, the patriarch is this kind of like floating spectre mm. that hangs around in, uh, you know, the Roman feminist group. There is no uh, coherent ideology around the hatred of women. Mm -hmm. And so that you cannot classify it as the same thing. And what actually, it's a bit like the Sarah Everard murder and the reaction to that. These overblown, um, to, to use that sexist term even, hysterical responses to 
acts like this, what it really does is, you know, it slanders men, but I think more importantly, it makes women frightened when they shouldn't be. We, there's no reason for anyone to be frightened of the terrorist threat of incels. People like Davison do not come about all the time. Um, they're very abnormal. And he's just a very screwed up man who did a very awful thing. And can we, can we for once just let that be enough? And uh, yeah. rather than actually, I think, tarring his victims with this kind of salacious desire to make it more than it is and freaking women out in the process. I mean, on, on the point of that ideology stuff as well, because if you, if people are trying to frame this purely as a kind of misogyny thing, it doesn't really fit that category no. particularly well either. I mean, as I say, the kind of incel ideology such as is, is huge and vast. And there's all these weird little sectarian divides, little subgroups. You know, there's one, there's a whole group who refer to as wrist cells because they blame their lack of success on women in their small wrists and all mm. this kind of stuff. I mean, it's this kind of vast and ridiculous. But it, particularly in the attacks that we've seen that are kind of incel linked is, um, first of all, you see men and women being killed. But also if you look at the stuff they say on this stuff, they really loathe men or sexually successful men or men who um, go along with what they see as a deeply unfair society to women mm. and all the rest of it. In the lingo, it's the Chads and the Stacys who they reserve particular hatred for. Um, so it doesn't really fit into that particular category either. And the other thing is that when you think about these individuals, even in situations unlike Davison, who left no manifesto or anything like that, people are picking apart his uh, Reddit posts and yeah. his YouTube videos um, and looking for clues. But cases like Elliot Roger or Alec Manassian, in Elliot Roger's case, there's this huge manifesto and very long video. In Manassian's case, there's a Facebook post talking about the incel revolution beginning. It's important not to take them at their word yeah. as well, because what can often happen in all forms of terrorism, incidentally, is that there are certain cases which just are about violent, murderous, sociopathic, however you want to call it, evil individuals who reach for a kind of script mm. to justify their own um, murderous hatred, really. And that happens in certain um, nominally Islamist attacks as well from time to time as well, which is worth pointing out. Um, so you've just got to get this stuff into perspective. But it, it does feel like identity politics is just is shaping how we talk about terrorism full stop. Yeah. And that's a real problem because this is a practical issue of security, which needs to be talked about in a cool headed way. But because there's this desperation to say, oh, it's not just Islamism, it's all these other forms as well. And my issue, women's issues must be represented, must have a seat at the table as well. Look at this guy. Um, that's not serious. Yeah. And if anything, it could potentially divert resources away from where they're actually needed. And we all know where the main threat comes from. And I mean, the other aspect to this, I mean, this is, it plays more into the kind of non sort of murderous incels as well but the effect that the mainstream culture of victimhood actually has on on these men is really striking because you can see in some of their forums there is almost a competition to be the most victimized now it's almost it's an extreme form of the kind of oppression olympics that we sometimes take the piss out of on this on this podcast you know you have these men who will say no i am the biggest loser no i'm you know I've definitely never had sex and I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to find a girlfriend. And they kind of relish in that um, state of kind of patheticness and, and, and compete with each other for, for that kind of recognition. So there is something quite, um, you know, there's something quite worrying. There's a worrying interplay between the problems of mainstream culture and this horrific subculture. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have often said that um, perhaps not incels, but certain the kind of the more whingy end of the men's rights activist spectrum 
um, are a pretty much a mirror image of contemporary feminists in that both sides um, differ in terms of who they think is to blame for their victimization, mm. but they feel a deep sense of um, put you know, that, that they're put upon that the uh, problems in their life, whether it's their lack of sexual activity or being passed over on their looks or whatever it is, or being, or, you know, having problems in their personal life is someone else's fault is the fault of either you know the patriarchy in men for contemporary feminists or it's bitchy women and their sort of evil plots to keep men down for men's rights activists and as you say the incel movement is a kind of extreme form of that but rather than talking about how we could challenge a, the kind of cult of contemporary victimhood and how we might it's no you know i think lots of these individuals on uh these forums just need to can get out more. It's really as simple as that. And of course, there's that wasn't the um, solution for Davison because he mm. was a screwed up person with murderous intentions who carried out those. That's a different um, kind of different scenario. But for those who are on these Reddit posts well into the night talking about how they're so desperate to have sex, you do think just go out and try. It might happen. <laughs> yeah. And in the same way, there's this real reluctance with um, feminist groups to suggest that some of the issues that women face, whether it be being pissed off by being catcalled yet again for the you know second week running might be solved by them taking action in the world might be solved by doing something by saying something by reacting back engaging with other people rather than becoming so insular that is the most toxic part of this is that inceldom and all these kind of identity politics um shaped ways of seeing the world is so insular and in that way is dangerous because if you're only looking at how you feel and you're only seeing the world through your own prism of um of emotions then it's going to be warped because no that's not reality and that's not engaging in reality so if you we you know calling them terrorists is nothing if you want to have a discussion about what to do with all these sad young guys who seem to be giving up on themselves perhaps um a little bit of tough love and perhaps a little bit of recognition that both sides of this sort of feminism men's rights activist debate need to learn to let go of the cult of victimhood are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom anti-woke person in your life then look no further than the spiked shop you can now get your favorite spiked slogan on a t-shirt hoodie tote bag or mug including ban nothing question everything love europe hate the eu and cancel cancel culture and if you're a Spiked supporter, you can get a 15% discount on anything. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com forward slash shop. Let's talk a bit about um, a very uh, worrying free speech case. So two men have been sentenced to prison, one for producing a video, a racist video, um, talking about Priti Patel, another merely for sharing it. Both of these men were sharing this video essentially in private groups before it became public, but they've been arrested anyway for um, essentially communicating grossly offensive mm. material. Tom, what have you made of this? I think this is really alarming because I think one thing that even our kind of status quo restrictions on speech kind of rely upon some kind of private public distinction mm. you know there's a kind of sense in which even though we do have hate speech laws of various different kinds the idea that you would be criminalized for something you say in your own home is that's something that still terrifies people and worries yeah. people deeply we saw that in the discussions of the scottish hate crime bill and whatever but here we just have the kind of digital extension of this really so these two racist knuckle draggers you know sharing this racist video between each other 
on private groups, but because it was then taken and put on Twitter and goes viral, suddenly mm. it becomes a public statement. And by a third, unnamed third party, we should say, it becomes a public statement and then they should be criminalised. So I think it, the erosion of even that distinction that we were kind of clinging on to yeah. a little bit is really quite alarming. But I think cases like this also remind us that when we are talking about free speech, these are the hard cases that you also have to get stuck into. Yeah. So far as even when they're you know, just going on racist, disgusting rants, free speech has to apply here too because it's for all or for it's for none at all so those are the two things that kind of strike me about it the fact that it is that further bit by bit mm. encroachment but also the fact that if we are serious about sticking up for free speech it's these kinds of people you're occasionally gonna have to stick up not for them but for the rights of them to talk their nonsense absolutely and it's not even the first case of its kind i mean recently we had a similar case where i mean this is kind of a long-running um row over these you know again more knuckle draggers uh, in their back garden, produced an effigy of the Grenfell Tower fire. Mm. I mean, really, really disgusting, low stuff. But again, because the image somehow gets out and becomes viral, or the video, I should say, gets out, becomes viral, then they end up being prosecuted. Um, you know, the the guy um, who made the Grenfell Tower video could face jail time. Yeah, and it's, this isn't just about defending idiots rights to do idiotic and horrible and offensive stuff it's also about because it's quite clear cut that if you're going to burn an effigy of grenfell you're going to post racist things then you're an immoral person but the but what happens if you're in a different scenario and say you're watching love island and you're writing some comment you know as me and my friends do running commentary about what's going on on the telly (laughs) and someone doesn't like what you've said about someone and then they take it and they post it and then it spirals out of control gets taken out of context as so many of these things do well then you're in trouble because the if you don't take a hard line on defending the very obvious cases where someone you know it's very clear to see that that video um talking about pretty patel was racist but when the lines get blurred and you start um you people start using their kind of subjective view of whether or not something is or isn't racist that we've covered many times on this podcast ends up broadening out to a ridiculous extreme then what you're doing is corroding the ability for people to have private discussion. I mean, and this, the implication for politics is, is dire because you need to be able to have in life private spaces, not to go on the racist rants because most people don't do that, but to have open discussions where you might test things out, where you might say things that you wouldn't normally say in public, where you have a certain level of secrecy and a level of, um, of separation from public life that has to be protected. And if you start inviting the authorities into that very private space to, and break a breakdown of loyalty within people to be able to say we, to, to use that term, safe space, have a genuine safe space for the sharing of ideas, that's really corrosive for public discussion and for public debate because it means that everyone is just looking over their shoulder to wonder whether their comments are going to get taken out of context. I mean, we Spiked has covered this before with videos like the Nazi pub video and things like that where things that, you know, you or I might not decide to do because they're, I think, relatively idiotic get taken out of all contexts and it happens a lot with jokes as well and people end up getting penalised for things that really shouldn't be penalised. So there's the defence of free speech in a very obvious way but there's also the concern about the way in which this has a corrosive effect on public discussion and people's trust to be able to test out ideas. Uh, Finally, let's talk about something that's criminally idiotic, if not actually criminal, thank God. Um, So the model Lily Cole posted a handful of pictures on Instagram of herself in a burqa, Mm. tagged with um, essentially a post praising diversity. Mm. 
in the week where we've obviously we've been talking about the events in Afghanistan and the takeover of the Taliban. What do you make of this? <laughs> We're Taliban chic, as Brendan said on, yeah. on Spike this week. I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous. I mean, it shows you why you shouldn't go to celebrities for your opinions. She said that she hadn't read the news, and that's mm. why she didn't realise it would seem so insensitive to post a picture of yourself in a burqa at a time in which young women in Kabul and elsewhere were being forced to wear them for the first time in their lives. I, I also thought the backlash was interesting to it, because yeah. a big part of it was to say that it was cultural appropriation, mm. which is interesting. You know, you wear, you're wearing a misogynistic garment, and the thing people want to say about it is hey stay in your lane sister it's a bit ridiculous <laughs> but um and also the fact that she in her apology she apologized for not wearing it properly yeah in other words <laughs> which, showing her face exactly. not covering it up completely which seems to me to get things slightly the wrong way around how identity politics just kind of screws everything up to the mm. point where um again in this scandal the thing to apologize for is those two things rather than the fact that you are in some way shape or form kind of lionizing as a symbol of diversity an image of deep misogyny and lack of rights for women <laughs> but that's the that's the world that we live in unfortunately Ella. the conversation about the burqa has become so twisted in this country because there's the suggestion that unless you wholeheartedly celebrate and support it as something that's a fantastic option for women then you're islamophobic and if there is a real difference between there should be a real difference between being tolerant to people's religious reviews and saying wear the headscarf or the burqa or whatever you want if that is what you want to do which is women in the west have the choice to uh you know to make that decision women in kabul at the moment don't have that choice and women in other parts of the world have to wear headscarves and burqas whether they like it or not but that doesn't mean that i think it's I have to say that i think it's fantastic and i agree with the idea that you would cover yourself as a woman on a religious basis linked to your inferiority to men mm. there's a real pretense at the heart of this which is you know or the burqa is just this thing that people choose to do it sucks it out of all meaning i mean any woman who wears it will tell you that it means something to her that it act, that it is a symbol um, of her religious views but that also it is loaded with meaning about men and women's relationships in, within that religious view. And you, we should be able to disagree with that. And we should be able to actually say it's wrong. And for someone like Lily Cole to use it in this kind of a way, not just as a kind of fashion garment and she's a model, but as a way of sort of obsequiously trying to lick ass Muslims and say, oh, I think it's so wonderful. At the same time as, by the way, on her Instagram and other social media posts, going on and on about women's rights, mm. going on and on about how socially active she is and, you know, all this mm. kind of stuff. The cognitive dissonance <laughs> is like making me my head spin because you can't do those two things at the same time. It's not just bad faith for yourself, but it's also insulting to those women who do choose to wear the burqa for re reasons I disagree with. We should, a tolerant society means being able to say, do it if you want, but I have the right to tell you to try and convince you to live my way because I think my way of living is better. Mm. And that's the thing about the, the discussion around the burqa and the niqab. People try and treat it as if it's a fundamentally just like a war on Muslim women to talk about this issue. Not only do most women, Muslim women, certainly in the West, not wear these garments, yeah. but also there's a big difference between that and just a hijab, which no one really cares about. You know, mm. no, no one's really got that much of a problem with. These garments in particular are about shutting women out of public life in the same way that they would usually, you know, having to literally cover their faces. This is a fundamentally different question. But there's just so much either ill-informed or just bad faith conflation going on um, to the point where if you talk about one, you're suddenly just being relig religiously intolerant or Islamophobic and racist. I mean, that. but this is a very specific thing. And it's just interesting to see even uh, alleged kind of women's rights advocate influencer wade into this so cat handily just kind of shows how much confusion there is on this topic. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, 
which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.